You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and my guest today is Victor S. Navasky, longtime editor, then publisher of The Nation magazine, and now chairman of the Columbia Journalism Review. Victor Navasky first joined me here in 1980 for an open mind conversation about naming names, his National Book Award winning study of the Hollywood blacklist. Last time, my guest and I discussed his absolutely splendid, just-published Alfred A. Knopf book, The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power. And one must really puzzle over what has happened to the media generally in the three decades and more between our first and our most recent programs. For that theme, of course, was summed up in the impressive May-June 2013 cover story of Chairman Navasky's Columbia Journalism Review with the question, kids now get their news in bits and bytes from social media on their phones. With journalism retreating behind paywalls, how will they know what's true? And that's the question I would ask my guest today. Victor, with all the, I was going to say garbage, forgive me for that, but with all the bits and bites that come in, unedited, how do our kids growing up know what's true, what's real, what to believe? I mean, you know, I'm 80 years old, and the view from 80 is that uh, we didn't do such a great job ourselves of figuring out what was true. And my kids, I have three of them, seem brighter than I am, and, uh, and they're all into the new media. One of them reads a lot more than the other two do, but one of them is, makes documentary films, and um, one of them is a social worker. And uh, I have a lot, and I just came from the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism's Journalism Day, where one of the co-founders of Politico, this website and publication, spoke. And it, it was really inspirational. And what he basically said was um, that with all of the sort of uh, gloom and doom about what's happening in journalism today, he believes there's never been a more exciting time because everyone under 40 is into all of this new stuff that you deride slightly in your question. Not slightly. Okay. And that if you have an entrepreneurial gene in addition to an interest in journalism, that there are no limits, and it's not accidental that all of these new millionaires and billionaires are under 30, and uh, that it's never been more exciting because you can create something and, and that doesn't exist, and they're doing it all the time. And my own experience tells me that when, not just experience, reading tells me, someone once said to me that they, Greeks thought that that uh, print would put conversation out of business and that people thought that radio would put print out of business 
People thought that McLuhan came along. People thought that movies would put print out of business. People thought that television would put movies out of business. All of the old media are still with us. Conversation is with us. Print is with us. Movies are with us. Television is with us. The fact that you have this new medium is not going to put the old media out of business. So they have more to choose from rather than, rather than less. And that doesn't mean that one shouldn't worry about some of the recent trends. In the short run, I believe that the uh, online media and the, that world, the digital world, is degrading the uh, traditional media and its values. In the long run, I think the possibility of interconnectivity and back and forthness is a great thing. And there are many more sources we have to check things out. There's a great irony in the short run. The irony in the short run is, and I did, I, I got a foundation grant to do a survey of magazines and their websites. And here's what I found, courtesy of the MacArthur Foundation, which you didn't have to do a survey because you knew it beforehand. But once you get the numbers, it's impressive and depressing. Number one, magazines, even a prestigious magazine like The New Yorker, their online versions don't, do not fact check as rigorously, if at all, as their print versions. Number two, their online versions do not copy edit, if at all, as rigorously as their print versions, which is a degradation of standards. Number three, the church-state wall between advertising and, and uh, editorial doesn't exist the way it did in the traditional media, in the online world. There are things that pop up all the time, and there are other th things, so-called con advertising content, that uh, blur the line between these. And number four, the um, presumption in the world of print that you don't use anonymous sources, except in cases where there's a special reason to do so, is the reverse online where everybody has a handle and so there's in theory no no accountability now there are answers for each of these things that people involved in new media give to one when you point this out to them they'll say that yeah there maybe there's not faction but they fact checked after the fact you get a thousand people who identify errors when they come in and then you correct it and they have answers like that there are all, there are problems with all those answers but I believe that, that in the short run, there is a degradation because as things have speeded up, that they have forgotten the importance of these standards and or not figured out how they apply in the new world of the, of the digital media. In the longer run, I think we'll figure out creative ways to deal with it. And you still have traditional media to weigh against the, the material that you see in the online world. So, I'm more optimistic than your question would suggest I should be. I don't believe you. Okay. Now, Victor, that's a terrible thing to say to a guest. No, it's not. I think <laughs> you're trying to look at the brighter side, trying desperately to look at the brighter side, and I guess I don't blame you. Uh, uh, to be a, uh, since I'm much older than you, yeah, I don't believe that you don't believe me. I think you're just trying to make good television. <laughs> well, I don't believe you. I don't believe that uh, someone as perceptive as you are um, doesn't feel the need for um, looking for the brighter side. I, I, I understand that, and you do. 
Uh, but I guess I don't believe that the long run is anything other than a shield for what in the world are we going to do anyway? So why, with my three children as my two children and my grandchildren, accept this or part of this as my students are, why um, curse the darkness? Let's light a candle, and the candle is one of hope. Well, I look at the cover of your Columbia Journalism Review, and it's brilliant. All these little birds with their mouths wide open to be fed, our kids to be fed. What do we want to feed them with? We want to feed them with something as close to what you and I will call truth as possible. And then you list the change in editing practices, the change in fact-checking processes, uh, all of these things. How do we go on without doing great damage to these chickies? Because uh, what you're calling a change, let's take the New Yorker magazine. Yeah. Um, I could take the Nation magazine, which I know more about, but I'm going to take the New Yorker because more people get it, see it, and all that. The fact that the New Yorker online is not, has, I would say, lower standards than the New Yorker in print. That's a word that has meaning, lower. Yeah, no, I use it advisedly, uh, and maybe they've changed their ways by now, but I don't know that they have. Um, doesn't take away from the fact that the New Yorker in print still exists. <laughs> not only does it still exist, it's a way to judge the online version of it. Now they have, so you've got a plus in the online version of a lot of new things out there, some of which are very good, and some of which are not so good. And, uh, but you also have the old publication that comes out week in, week out, even though the rhythm of public events has changed. Let me interrupt um, you and yes. take just that point. Are you so sure, are you certain at all, in your own heart and own mind that we'll continue to have that old time magazine and that we'll continue to have at least the model of its standards. That's number one. Number two, who's reading it? Yeah. How many people are reading it? Uh, the major figure in a major publication that we both greatly respect, though we have differences with it, the other day he said to me, no, it won't be here in 10 years. He didn't believe. Okay. Does he want it to be there, right. here? Of course. Well, am I sure? No, I'm not sure, but I'm not sure of anything, you know. Uh, but do I believe? Yes, I do believe. You do think? Oh, of course, be yeah, I do. And uh, my wife is a stockbroker, and about 10 years ago I told her, maybe it was five years ago, if I were you, I would invest in the New York Times. I would tell my clients to invest in the New York Times. I never tell her what to tell her clients. She knows a lot more than I do about stock market. But I would tell my clients to invest in the New York Times. Their stock was down at about two, whatever it was. And uh, it's crazy because of all of the people like you and me to a lesser extent who decry the present circumstance and they had made some mistakes about their building and other things like that. And sure enough, the stock went up in the next period. It doubled or something. But will the times be with us in the way it has been all these years? Who knows? Um, 
You know, I never um, believed until recent years that family-owned things were never were the best things to have. But it turns out in the newspaper business, the family has stood up against the, the worst part of some of these radical changes in the business. With many so, exceptions. Yes, with many exceptions, yes. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm puzzled too, Victor. I, I don't mean to be overly critical. No. Just no. adequately Good. critical. I was surprised at your answer about, you, you, you embraced an answer that you were given. You repeated it with pleasure. That, look, what these new media have provided is an opportunity for the entrepreneurial in us yes. to do so well. That doesn't sound like the old Victor I knew. Well, I, you know, I happen not to, I have a Facebook page, I happen not to use it. <laughs> That's a comment on my inability. I think it's a great thing that Facebook is out there. I don't think that's a bad thing. All of these ways of putting people together have enlarged the um, opportunity for diverse perspectives, experiences, relationships, and other things uh, in a way that uh, folks who grew up in a particular neighborhood never had available to them before, especially poor folks. And this changes that in a way that it's, we have to see whether it's for the better or the worse. Well, but what about you published published it? You're well, the publisher. Kids now get their news in bits and bytes from social media or on their phones. How will they know what's true? Okay, here's what CJR's experience. One of CJR's experiences is CJR has its own website. CJR's website has circulation, much, readership much higher than the magazine. The magazine, maybe 18, 20,000, hundreds of thousands of people see the website. Um, one of the facts about the CJR website, and I think it's true of other publications as well, is that the highest traffic they get is for the articles that have already appeared in the magazine. Uh, so... Uh, go figure. Well, go figure, but, but I think there's... You know, in the end, I mean, this is what democratic theory is all about. What is, and it's what truth questions have to do with, that truth is going to be the idea that survives because it has survived the test of, uh, it, it survived in the marketplace of ideas. The marketplace of ideas is an imperfect marketplace because money determines too much of what people see and what they get access to. But to the extent that it works the way it's supposed to work, it you get the, the benefit of the old standards in processing these articles that are longer than you're supposed to be able to tolerate online, and yet we see that it works. And even in the old media, it was unthinkable, for example, that Time magazine, however many years ago, would have run Steve Brill's long piece about the healthcare system. It's great that they ran that long piece about the healthcare system. So we're, we're discovering new things about consumers of literature, of news, and readers all the time, and I think the new media will be vulnerable to the same tests, and if it turns out that they're unreliable, people will stop relying on them. And, and that goes for our children as well as older folks. 
One of the interesting things, though, that y your question raises is at the nation where the demographics are older, um, one of the business, a couple of the business people said to me a few years ago when I was, when I was the publisher of it, um, listen, why is everyone searching for youth? Why aren't we happy? We get a, such a high return from our older readers. Well, they're dying off. Well, yes, they're dying off, but new, but young people are going to be old. Getting older. And, that, and they're going to value it. And they're going to value I said, maybe you're right. We, you test it. I mean, that's what you do in that business. And, uh, but no, I believe that because young people will benefit from the nation, that we should keep uh, trying to figure out ways to reach them. And also, but we shouldn't uh, undervalue our seniors. Is there any indication, um, Victor, that there is any real movement in the direction of righting this wrong? Let's say one anticipates in time it'll work out. That's what you're hoping. That's in a sense what you're saying. Is there anything pushing that working out, the matter of uh, standards? Well, I can tell you what we're doing at CJR. Um, we got a, a modest grant to set up a board of overseers to help with fundraising and other things. One of the first things that the board has taken upon itself to do is to figure out what standards ought to apply in the online world for CJR. And in figuring out what standards ought to apply, um, we hope that'll be a model for the press writ large, both online and in the print world. So for example, um, in this flight to uh, keep up with the news in order to build traffic, my own view and preference is that you don't sacrifice accuracy for timeliness. And that uh, in the end, that that's going to pay off for CJR. And we have yet to adopt our standards, but how does that apply to content um, that is advertising paid for content, where there's a, um, a question about what the line between advertising and editorial. I start out believing the answer to those things is transparency, that all advertising be identified as such with a big sign that's so it can't be confused with editorial content. And, but I don't object to advertising sponsored content as long as it is seen as an ad rather than disguised as, as an editorial. So how those standards find their way into CJR's proclamation and whether we can perform an educational function for the larger media community, we'll know shortly. Is there any information about uh, what has happened in specific uh, uh, instances in which, whether uh, in the old media or the new, efforts have been made to establish or to recreate or to strengthen standards uh, so that accuracy, for instance, rather than time, is um, maintained, is, is, is a primary criterion, not uh, timeliness or beating the other guy. Is there any information about the degree to which the one has been tried and won or lost? There are people out there who will tell you there is. I don't believe that there is yet an, an adequate study that has been done that speaks to the question you ask. Uh, 
you asked the earlier question about truth, but of course people have been grappling with what is truthful down through the ages, but um, I do think that's a cop-out, that it is important to set, uh, to do the best we can, and, uh, and there's no reason to me, there's no intrinsic reason in setting standards in the media that you can't, uh, in effect, test the proposition that you're questioning. So Those who have said we have the answer, what is their answer? Well, I, I gave one type of answer they give. So online they say that um, fact-checking after the fact is as good as fact-checking before the fact because it can be remedied so quickly and that and they talk about crowd and cloud and things like that. So you have these millions of eyeballs who come in and see what you put out there and, and you can fix it. Of course, there isn't an agreed upon protocol for doing that. Some places change the original and you don't know that it's been changed and you don't know that, that people who only saw the first version, which had the wrong fact, uh, will ever get the truth of the, to the, to the accurate fact. So there will be protocols, in my view, developed, and I think we can play a role in helping to develop them to deal with that issue. So if you change something, it, the original should, be, should still be there, whether it's done by asterisk or done by color or done however it's done. So that, and you should, it should be noted when it was changed, and you have to have criteria to decide when you, who is right and who is wrong, and all of those are not easy issues, but that's what uh, journalism and uh, life is all about. Well, certainly life is all about yes. that. National News Council, I promised myself right. that I would not let this program end and we have four to five minutes without asking you about um, your experience over the years. What it, has it led you to conclude about ombudspersons, public editors, National News Council? What, where, where do you end up, not end up because you've got so many years to go, but where are you now? Um, the National News Council is such a um, particular thing. I was not there when it was there, but CJR, as it happened, used to run the proceedings of the National News Council, and for viewers who don't know what it was, some people would come in with a complaint about what happened, and then there would be an investigation. And uh, What would ha had happened in the press? Yes. Misstatements? And, or yes, and then there would be a judgment rendered on it, like the Supreme Court or something. Uh, who were the people who were making those judgments? Did they do a good job or not? Is there anything intrinsically wrong with that format? format? I'm not against it, but I didn't think that it, it's the answer to all our problems. I am all for ombudsmen in all these organizations. And ten years ago, not ten years ago, many more than ten years ago, I worked at the New York Times in the 1970s, and Harrison Salisbury was then running the op-ed page. And, the paper went through uh, an experiment, and every section was instructed to um, make a plan for where they wanted to be 10 years from, from that day in the early 1970s. And the head of each section was free to invite anyone from elsewhere on the paper to join a team 
that would help plan the, f the future of that section. And I was asked by Harrison to join his team. Another person on that team was Hilton Kramer. Hilton and I had very different politics. I admired Hilton's intellect and all that. Hilton became the editor of the New Criterion. Subsequently, at the Times, he was at the time he was the Times art critic. And I said, in, as an idea for the op-ed page at that point, why don't we have an ombudsman? And uh, the, the only newspaper at that point that had an ombudsman that I knew about was the Washington Post. And um, Hilton piped up and said, that is the stupidest <laughs> idea that I have ever heard of. New York Times is clearly, you know, the best paper in the world. And why should we waste our space on criticizing ourselves? Everyone is out to get us anyway. He made a pretty good case why it was a stupid idea. And it was dropped. And, and they forgot about it until many years later, along came the public editor. And it was Danny Okrent. And he did a great job. I thought, and I think the current public editor, Margaret Sullivan, is terrific. And I learn from her and I read and she raises questions that I've never thought of myself. And they go beyond the New York Times. They go to journalism itself and she does things that I hope CJR is able to do. You say you hope CJR is, is, is able to do. Is there a movement in that direction? Uh, CJR is, is one hopes an ombudsman for the press writ large by press, I mean online and print, and I mean worldwide, um, and I mean globally so. And CJR actually has to face a lot of these issues because we have begun to have licensing additions in China, in Cyprus, and in Brazil. And each one poses a different set of challenges and questions. And it's an educational experience for us. We'll have to discuss them at another time. Okay. Thank you for joining me to discuss this educational experience. Thank you. I appreciate Great. it a lot, Victor. Great. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other open mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash open mind. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from the Rosalind P. Walter Foundation, the Bluestein Family Foundation, the Joan Gans Cooney and Peter G. Peterson Fund, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Malkin Fund, the May and Samuel Rudin Family Foundation, the Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America. <laughs>